Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we begin a new five-week series focusing in-depth on the teaching of Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount. This series is called The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. So let's begin now as we listen to Dr. Neufeld and turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. Leonard Cohen is a Canadian, he's a musician, a composer, a singer, an entertainer, but most of all, I think he's a poet. His songs all reflect Cohen's combination of Judaism, Buddhism, hedonism, and this haunting sense of never having been fulfilled. In his famous song, Democracy, he imagines that true democracy, the kind the human race has longed for, has not yet arrived, but it is indeed coming. It's coming, says Cohen, from a wide variety of conflicting, contradictory, and chaotic voices that include everything from the protests in Tiananmen Square to the struggle between men and women over who has to prepare the food in the kitchen. And although this struggle for democracy is messy and sometimes makes no sense at all, and sometimes it gets entangled with hate and greed and need, and yet all these messy voices are leading to the coming of true democracy. In one of the lines in his song, he writes, It's coming through a crack in the wall on a visionary flood of alcohol from the staggering account of the Sermon on the Mount, which I don't pretend to understand at all. I find that line fascinating. Cohen reflects the confusion in the minds of many people. What is the Sermon on the Mount really all about? So many conflicting interpretations of what Jesus meant, and yet for many, like Leonard Cohen, there's a sense that it has something to do with transforming society, of introducing a new ethic that moves thinking people towards a society that reflects true justice. Democracy is coming, and the Sermon on the Mount, even though it's confusing to Cohen, is contributing to the call for justice that every voice can be heard. Jim Wallace is a theologian and a left-wing activist, and he thinks the ethics Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount has the potential to build a new economy in the United States, an economy that abandons such things as reliance on oil and on the stock market. It inspired the Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, This sermon thinks Wallace should propel us to be involved in social justice issues, especially those that fall along the left-wing variety. That, says Wallace, is what Jesus was driving at, correcting economic disparity between people. But it turns out there are other views on the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. There are those who think that the Sermon on the Mount is a kind of a bridge connecting the Old and the New Testament. Some have even suggested that Jesus never meant for us to live according to the standards that he proposed in this sermon. Rather, this sermon was meant to drive us to despair so that we would seek the mercy he would later provide us at the cross. So, in other words, according to this understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never intended us to take him literally. He never thought that we were capable of actually doing the things that he told us to do. Instead, he intended us to discover that the demands of God would lead us to despair, and so we would learn to seek God in another way by faith in the cross, as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. Wow. Did Jesus really expect that when he told people to love their enemies or to refrain from lust, that this was impossible? And if that's so, well, it seems that it's a kind of a convenient way not to do what he told us to do. Well, still others argue that the sermon is really directed toward Israel and not to the Gentiles or to the church. And again, if that's the case, it serves as something important in the age to come, but not for now. 
Again, I guess I don't have to do it, except that as you read the sermon, it sounds exactly the opposite, doesn't it? When Jesus warned that in the final day, many will say, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name and all sorts of stuff. I just didn't do what you told me to do. Then he will actually say, I never knew you. And that seems to indicate that Jesus expected that we were to do what he commanded us to do. Given all these amazingly contradictory ways of seeing Jesus' sermon, I find myself somewhat understanding of Leonard Cohen when he says he's fascinated by what Jesus said, but he doesn't pretend to understand it at all. I mean, who can blame him? Well, I blame him. You see, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is actually understandable. But how should we understand it? And why should we think that the approach that I'm going to take in interpreting this sermon is any more right than the other theories? I mean, where do we start? Well, let's start with this statement. This sermon is the greatest sermon ever preached. I mean, I think I've preached well on a Sunday when people are still talking of my sermon on Wednesday or Thursday. But here we are 2,000 years later, and people are still talking about and thinking about and even arguing about the actual meaning of this sermon. Christians and non-Christians alike have found this sermon amazing and alluring and captivating to the imagination. Cohen called it a staggering account, and so it is. It is the greatest sermon ever preached. I think I can say that objectively. No sermon in the long history of sermons has been remembered like this one. It was preached in the outdoors to probably more than a thousand people. It was written down by Matthew who heard it, and it's stuck in the mindset and the imaginations and conversations of people ever since. This truly is the greatest sermon ever preached. But can we understand it? Well, let me give you one illustration. I know of a pastor who actually memorized it and without telling his people what he had done, simply stepped into the pulpit on a Sunday morning and preached it, trying to preach it the way that Jesus might have done. He overheard two women talking about it on the way out. One said to the other, you know, that was a fascinating sermon, but I sure disagree with it on a number of points. Well, no doubt. But isn't it interesting? She actually understood it. That's what got her so upset. And that's because Jesus got incredibly practical about the way we live out our lives. He speaks about how to settle disputes between people, about sex and the sexual temptations everyone faces, about marriage and divorce, about how to deal with evil people, about how to handle money, how to pray, how to prepare for retirement, how to get along with people whose mistakes and sins are more than obvious. And he spoke about what to think about multi-religious environments. I mean, even if you miss the main point of the whole thing, there will be a number of points along the way when Jesus will meddle into almost every part of normal living. But let's return to our question. Can we understand the whole? I mean, can we really grasp why he was saying what he was saying? Well, that depends. And on what? On whether you want to understand it from your perspective or from the issues you want it to address or whether you want to understand it from Jesus' perspective. See, that's the problem with Leonard Cohen. He wanted the sermon to reflect his desire for a more excellent democracy. No wonder he never understood it. See, until you understand it from Jesus' perspective and let him direct his own sermon, the point of the whole thing will always elude us. You know, if you follow Jesus' train of thought, the sermon becomes quite understandable. So that's the first decision. Do you want the sermon to address your agenda, or will you let Jesus speak for himself? 
I hope you will offer Jesus the respect to let him talk for himself, to let this greatest sermon ever preached be heard from the perspective of the man who gave it. But what is Jesus' perspective? Is he speaking about democracy, or maybe it's social justice? Maybe it's the millennium, or the unique role of Israel, or or the relationship between the two Testaments in the Bible? What? Well, let's begin where Matthew does. See, up to this point, if you read through Matthew, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. And as he begins to preach around the region of Galilee, he's headquartered in a small fishing village called Capernaum. And from there, he embarks upon what might be called an itinerant ministry. See, an itinerant ministry means that Jesus was a traveling preacher who would have been preaching a fairly similar message wherever he was going. And so Jesus has been teaching and preaching only one message. See, wherever he's gone, it's been pretty much the same thing. According to Matthew, who was there and who witnessed it, the message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And what we find in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 is the elongated version of that essential message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the theme of all he spoke about. The Sermon on the Mount is the actual content of what he actually said. It takes us into the nuts and bolts of what Jesus was saying everywhere he went. But what did Jesus mean when he announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand? What was it that he expected was going to happen? And just to give a hint, I noticed that according to Matthew 4, the chapter right before this record of the Sermon on the Mount, as he went along, he healed people of diseases. Diseases of the most frightening kind were instantly healed and more. He was casting out demons and everyone was watching him. And they concluded from what they saw that the kingdom of heaven was really at hand. This must be God breaking into the present moment. This must be the great end times that the prophets had spoken about. See, that's what Jesus was announcing. More when we come back. What is the Sermon on the Mount really all about? Well, as we've seen already today, there are many conflicting ideas about Jesus' teachings from the perspective of both Christians and non-Christians alike. But Dr. Neufeld helps us to begin to understand the greatest sermon ever preached, not from just any perspective, but from the viewpoint of Jesus himself. Stay with us after the break, as we'll continue to discover what the Lord was talking about in what is perhaps the most famous passage in the Bible. Have you checked out our new and improved website? Well, as part of our ongoing commitment to reach and impact more people online, we've recently updated the Back to the Bible Canada site, which offers not only a new design, but more content and relevant features. Listen to the latest broadcast or a series of Dr. Neufeld's broadcasts. Read Dr. Neufeld's blog, join our Partner to Tell program, and much more. We encourage you to visit the site regularly for all the latest updates from the ministry. Visit Back to the Bible .ca today. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. The message of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God meant two things. First, it meant that evil was about to be destroyed. When the kingdom of heaven arrived, the curse of Adam's sin was going to end. Sin, disease, war, demons, and death were about to be destroyed. And Jesus was demonstrating that he could do that. 
Second, the kingdom of heaven meant that God himself was about to reign. The Messiah would take his place sitting on David's ancient throne and rule all the nations of men in perfect righteousness. You know, to put this into our terms, it would be like announcing that the end times have now come. We would expect evil to be defeated, and Christ would reign, and that's exactly what Jesus was saying. But in Jesus, the kingdom came in a way that was unanticipated. I think the best way to describe that would be to let Jesus speak for himself. Matthew records Jesus telling a parable recorded in Matthew 13, 31 to 33. It says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. Put in plain language, the kingdom of heaven is coming in a way that makes it seem small and insignificant. Sure, a lot of people in Galilee were healed and so forth, but the wider world carried on just as before. But in time, this small thing will rule the world. I say that was unanticipated. See, the prophets of old spoke of both the kingdom and the king, but never that it would be instituted gradually. But for a period of time, and Jesus never tells us how long that time will be, but for a period of time, both the kingdom of heaven and the sin-cursed kingdoms of this world would coexist side by side. But the kingdom of heaven really was here, after all, what accounts for the blind seeing and the lame walking, even some of the dead being raised to life, and the demons, those demons who owned this earth, shrieking in fear and in confusion, wondering how it is that the king had come to torment them before the time of the end. And that's the mystery of the kingdom. With its arrival in a small fashion, yet it has delivered a death blow to this old era. Eventually, Jesus would rise from the dead and announce that death itself had lost its grip. The kingdom of heaven will destroy every vestige of this old sin-cursed earth. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. In this strange era where two time periods in history actually overlap, comes the great king, and he's making an offer. He's inviting people all over Galilee and beyond to come and become citizens of his kingdom before the old kingdoms of this world fall and are shattered. So how does the sermon work, or how does the appeal to enter into the kingdom actually being made? See, a careful analysis of the Sermon on the Mount reveals that it is a three-point sermon. Yeah, I know, I know. We've all been to church and have heard three-point sermons, but this actually is a three-point sermon. Easy to understand and easy to see where Jesus is going. The first section in this sermon is recorded in Matthew 5, 3 to 16. That's the part that begins with the Beatitudes and ends with the statement that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. I call that section a description of what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like. Or it might be taken to mean that this is what you will look like if you answer the call of Jesus and become a citizen of his kingdom. Now, this is very important because the beginning of Jesus' sermon is not an invitation to enter the kingdom. Jesus does not begin by saying, you should be poor in spirit. And if you become that way, you're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. No, no, we don't enter the kingdom of heaven by becoming poor in spirit. Rather, Jesus is simply making a rather matter-of-fact statement that the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers, well, they are the citizens of his kingdom. 
And that also follows with a statement about salt and light. He doesn't tell us to become salt and light. He says that the citizens of his kingdom are salt and light. Their presence in this sin-soaked world is hope for this world. Now, how they got that way, he does not yet tell us. Indeed, reading the rest of Jesus' teaching makes us aware that they got that way by being transformed by Jesus himself. Jesus makes the citizens of his kingdom to be the pure in heart. That is their identifying mark. Now, having painted a picture of what he is doing to people, Jesus now moves into the heart of his sermon. I call this the second point. It's found in chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. See, in this section of his sermon, Jesus now describes not the character of those in the kingdom, but rather as their king, he tells them what he requires of them. Here's where he demands they forgive their enemies and abandon lust and learn how to pray, among other things. We might call this second section the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. And the reason he speaks this way is that he wants those who are thinking of joining the king, that is, those who say, I don't want to be a part of the doomed kingdoms of darkness anymore. I want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. So the king is telling them, you better take the time and consider, I really am a king. And if you would be my subject, this is what I will demand of you. You'll have a responsibility to the needy and the poor, and you'll be called upon to love your enemies. Now, of course, there's something else here. To those who call Jesus our Lord and King, our King demands allegiance in that we show him our obedience. And then comes a third part of the sermon. It's the third section from chapter 7, verse 13, all the way to verse 27. And this is what I might call an old-fashioned altar call. See, because chapter 7, verses 13 to 27, begins by Jesus calling his hearers to enter by the narrow gate. But as they do, false prophets will be calling out to them to reject the doorway into his kingdom. They'll come in sheep's clothing, telling them that salvation can be found without swearing allegiance to the demands of the king. But Jesus warns that in the final day, many will say, I cast out demons in your name. But he will say, I never knew you, for you refuse to be obedient to my commands. And with that, he ends his sermon by comparing the kingdoms of this earth to a man who built his house on sand so that when the great day of judgment came, it was swept away and destroyed. See, the only hope that anyone can have is to right now decide to switch allegiances and become a citizen of his kingdom, to build his or her life on someone who will endure for all of eternity. And with that, the greatest sermon ever preached is over. No one had ever heard such a thing, and indeed in our world, no one other than Jesus is saying such a thing today. Jesus is defining himself and his kingdom as the deciding choice for the human race. So who is this sermon for? See, given the demanding nature of the sermon, you might think it is for those who are alive and rich in their spiritual lives. I mean, those who are aggressively motivated to obey their king regardless of the cost. But in that, we are reminded of the very first line in the sermon. The people on the inside, the, the citizens of the kingdom, are not known for their spiritual health, but for their spiritual poverty. They mourn, they're meek, and they also have an insatiable hunger for what Christ has to offer. See, and as we go through the sermon for these next five weeks, expect to be challenged. Jesus will not allow for easy believism that allows for sloppy and sinful living. The king is truly a king, and as a king, he makes demands on his subjects. But just when you think that you're failing, remember that Christ makes an offer to the least and to the weakest. 
If you listen to the king, you will find that his demands are not harsh. They are merciful indeed. They are intended to give you life that is altogether satisfying. So come on a wild journey and hear Jesus demanding of you and I a cost to discipleship. He will remind us that following him will cost us everything that we have. He will invite us into a lifestyle that will bewilder us and will demand more than we thought we were able to give. But in the end of the day, the promises that he makes will be so overwhelming that we will say with the apostles of old, Lord, where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Join us in this study of the King of the Sermon on the Mount. John, this is a great beginning to a great series on the Sermon on the Mount. It seems to me, though, that this sermon uh, in the Bible seems to cross boundaries. It seems to uh, be involved in many different types of beliefs and philosophies of life. Why is that, do you think? Yeah, people seem to be quoting it all over the place. I mean, politicians will quote it, and and various religious leaders will quote it, and uh, uh, social workers will quote it. It's fascinating to me to see how widely this sermon has found its way into areas that, you know, that would never consider a teaching of Jesus, but they do consider this. And this sermon has clearly contributed to Jesus' faith and his popularity uh, in all sorts of areas of society where you'd normally not find it. Uh, but I think I, I, I think I know some of the reasons for that. I mean, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, for instance, uh, is something that you want people to do. I mean, eventually you want to drive back all injustices in culture. People see that. But I think this sermon also for believers invites us to engage with non-Christians in what we find here because I think they'll find it fascinating as well. What a great beginning to what will be such a meaningful study looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Neufeld has shed light on what this sermon is meant to teach and show us about our faith and what Jesus requires of us as his followers. It's not just a list of rules or ethics for society. The heart of Christ's teaching goes much deeper than that. I hope this message has whetted your appetite for the greatest sermon ever preached as we walk through Matthew 5-7 to over the next five weeks. Be sure to join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld begins to unpack Matthew chapter 5, verses 2-4 to in a study called A Description of Enduring Joy. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We will tell the next generation. For the past 75 years of our international history, we've been committed to proclaiming God's Word across the country to reach people of all backgrounds with the good news of the Gospel. In an increasingly secular society, we believe this mission is more important than ever. We know that the Word of God is living and powerful, and that's why we want to invite you to join us as we continue to share biblical truth day after day. Through our Partner to Tell program, you can become part of a ministry team of dedicated monthly partners who help us sustain and grow this ministry. Any amount you decide to give each month will make a huge difference. Plus, you'll be helping us to reach our goal of 120 new monthly partners in 2016. So would you please consider becoming one and ensure that Canadians across the country continue to hear verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word. 
To join, please call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit our website at backtothebible.ca.